All right, we're continuing in our Gospel of Mark series, and my question today is, how many Pride and Prejudice fans are out there? Guys, you can admit it too, if you like historical romance. Pride and Prejudice fans, higher hands so I can see. How many have seen at least one of the movie adaptations, or maybe the miniseries on BBC, or... There's so many different spin-offs of this classic Jane Austen novel, including Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I missed that one. Did anybody see that one? Okay, any, if we have any recommendations, we can add to the list, but it's just something that has impacted the culture because it's a great story. If you want to save reading the 432-page book, and you don't want to take the time to watch the miniseries or one of the movies, I'll give you a really quick plot summary, but I won't ruin the whole storyline for you. Don't judge a book by its cover. Pride and prejudice. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, pride and prejudice have no place in your life. And that novel was about a specific time period where class and position and how you looked were everything. You had to marry the right person. You had to be seen by the right people. And I'm so glad that none of that happens today, that we all just love each other. There's no classes, and everybody just treats each other with love and respect, right? It still happens, even though we look back and say, well, weren't those people terrible? But pride and prejudice still exist. They're in our hearts, and their sin. Jesus Christ gave us the ultimate example of humility and compassion, and that's what he's calling his disciples to in today's message from the Gospel of Mark, and that's what he's calling us to, humility and compassion. Jesus' service to others, his sacrificial death were examples for his followers, and you don't get to just say, well, that's not who I am. I'm just like this. Because usually when we're saying that, we're saying I'm just a sinner. If you think of those times that you've said, well, that's just the way I am. Jesus died, so you don't have to stay that way. So I don't have to stay that way. We can change through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And that's what he's calling us to do. We can act, we can think, we can speak like Jesus and that requires humility and compassion being centered in our lives. So we're continuing our series, The Crown and the Cross, from the Gospel of Mark. Mark shows Jesus as a man with a clear message and a clear mission. And the reader, the listeners, all of us, are called to action. Mark gets right to the point and says, this is what Jesus did, what are you going to do? So the first half of the book that we just completed in the last week or so was an emphasis on Jesus as Messiah, as the king, the rightful wearer of the crown. And as we know, the people of his day were expecting the Messiah to come in, put on the crown, ride in on the white horse, and just take care of their enemies. He was going to be set up as the king. And there's a lot of prophecies that talk about that. But God's plan was for Jesus to be king reigning on earth Later on, even after where we are today, he first had to come as a humble servant. 
And Jesus said over and over again, I came to serve, not to be served. We talk about our world being turned upside down. It turned their world upside down. And the disciples didn't know what to make of this. They didn't know what to think of this. Even though they saw Jesus loving people, serving people, healing people, they kept thinking, okay, when are you going to become the boss? And when are we going to be the bosses with you? They, that's what they were expecting. They thought they were going to be part of this in-crowd ruler class. The second half, as we're focusing on that now, is Jesus preparing for his life's mission to suffer and die on the cross and then to rise from the dead. Last week, Dan shared how the disciples couldn't cast out a demon without faith and prayer. And today we're going to see the disciples struggling with pride and learning from Jesus what the right attitudes for ministry are. Our parallel passages are in Matthew 18 and Luke 9. So if you have bookmarks or anything that you want to put in those, we're going to reference those at some point. But you can turn to Mark chapter 9, and that's where we're going to have our main text. If you've never found these little mini post-its, I love them for doing Bible study because you can put them in different places in your Bible and they come out easily without tearing the page. So it's not a commercial. I don't even know what brand they are. They're from Amazon, but they look like that and you can put them all over your Bible so you can find things. So we're in Mark chapter 9. Let me pray before we read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for an opportunity to come together to hear from your Word, to see the gospel as you lived it out, and to see the real Jesus Christ, the man, the Son of Man, who came to serve others. Jesus, you were also the Son of God. You were sinless and perfect, and you lived a perfect example for us to follow. I just pray, Lord, that as we hear your word this morning, we would have open ears and open hearts, that we would not only be hearers, but that we would be doers of your word. Continue to work on our pride. Continue to help us develop humility and compassion and love for others, not only within our church, but within our community and around the world. We ask your blessing as we look into your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 down to 41. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll go through it a little bit at a time. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not know, want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If any would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, 
And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In your bulletin is a note sheet, and if you like writing things down, there's a place that you can take some notes. There are three main points as we look at this passage. The first is the Messiah's mission. This is now the second time that Jesus has told the disciples why he's really here. All the way back at the beginning of Mark, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready with God. Get right with God, because the kingdom of God is here. Repent of your sins. That was Jesus' message. And now, just in the last chapter, for the first time, Jesus told them that his mission, what he's going to do is die after he's mistreated. After he's suffered, he will die, and then he will rise again. The disciples fought about it the last time. Peter said, no way, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you can't keep me from doing this mission. This is God's will. So now for a second time, it's just the disciples together. They're passing through Galilee. He's now starting to make his way towards Jerusalem where he's going to finish his ministry and his life will be taken. He didn't want anyone to know. So he didn't want a crowd following him. He wanted to just be with the disciples, to speak to them, to teach them privately, because there's things that they needed to know, not only about him, but about ministry. What's the right attitude for ministry? Jesus knows that he's going to be leaving them, and they need to be prepared for this. So he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. It says they didn't understand this, and they were afraid to ask. Do you think that was pride? We don't want to look stupid. Peter got yelled at when he said something. We don't want the rebuke of Jesus. They didn't want to ask more because they were worried, maybe about what Jesus would think of them, or they didn't want to look silly in front of other people. Matthew tells us that they were greatly distressed after hearing this. And Luke 9, 45 tells us they didn't understand because it was concealed from them. This is one of the mysteries of God's work, kind of like when Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it says God caused his heart to be further hardened, that in the end, God would be glorified. So God does things that we don't always understand. Why didn't the disciples quickly understand this? They needed to process this. Jesus needed to continue to prepare them for this. But Jesus clearly knew what he needed to do. The Son of Man must die for the sins of the world. And he must rise again so that he could defeat the power of sin and the grave, offering not only the people of his day redemption and eternal life,
But us today, if Jesus didn't die, if he didn't rise again, we would not have peace with God. We wouldn't have forgiveness. This is all part of God's grand plan, and it had to happen God's way. So the next point is, who is greatest? Matthew and Luke tell us that the disciples were now discussing something very different from Jesus' mission. They're talking about which one of them was the greatest disciple. Just recently, three of them were on top of a mountain and saw Jesus transfigured. They got to see Moses and Elijah. They had an amazing experience. So those three were probably thinking, hey, we're, we're special. We're better than the rest of you. While Jesus is focusing on his death, the disciples are preoccupied with their status. He knew that rejection and suffering were coming, and yet they're worried about who's going to be the leader, who's going to have the high-ranking positions, the highest place in the kingdom. Jesus wanted them to understand that God's kingdom would come through defeat and not victory. Jesus knew that he must die in order for us to live. The world's values are turned upside down. So they arrived in Capernaum and they went into the house. Most likely this would be Peter's house because that was kind of their home base when they were in the Sea of Galilee area. He sat down and he called them to him. He's now in rabbi mode. And that's very specific that he sat down and they're maybe seated around him at his feet, listening. That's how you would learn from a rabbi. He wanted them to realize, this is a teaching moment. Listen to me. This is important. And even though he probably knew what was going on in their hearts, even though he may have overheard some of that discussion as they were walking to Capernaum, Matthew 18 tells us the disciples asked him who would be greatest in the kingdom. But Mark tells us, that Jesus asked them what they were all talking about, and they clammed up. Again, possibly ashamed. Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Matthew 18, 3 and 4 add even more to this. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Entering God's kingdom requires humility. No self-importance, no demanding respect or value. No, we can't come to God and say, God, look what I have to offer you. I can do this and this, and I've got wealth, and I've got position. I'm going to be great for you, God. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for humble hearts who say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. Forgive my sins. I'm not worthy to be called your son or daughter. Save me. And Scripture tells us that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. But we come humbly, like a child. In Jesus' day, children were the lowest on the social scale. Within a family, they might even be below the servant level because they were just there to grow up, to become adults, and then to be useful, to be helpful. But they would be not the ones that are highlighted. 
in their society or within their families. Jesus provides a living parable. He brings a child into the middle of the group so that they can see. He doesn't just talk about a child. He calls in maybe one of Peter's sons or daughters, if it was Peter's house. So can you imagine the guys all sitting around and and here's a little child and Jesus scoops him up and gives him a big hug. Can you imagine being hugged by Jesus? How amazing that would feel. Jesus not only puts him on his lap, but he gives him a hug. He embraces him and says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, and not just me, but the one who sent me, my Father in heaven. Jesus is telling his disciples to welcome new believers with open arms. Just like I'm welcoming this child who can do nothing for me. This child who brings no self-importance, no pride. This humble child who needs other people to take care of them, to feed them. This is how you should receive brothers and sisters. Just like God has received you. You have nothing to offer. So why should we look to others and say, what are you going to do for me? Do you do that? Maybe when you had friends when you were younger, you thought, well, this person is is pretty well-known in school. They're going to help me get to know more people. Or this kid has the great game system, so I'm going to hang out with him so I can play with them. Or this person has the house with the pool in the backyard. I'm going to become their friend so I can spend the summer with them. Sometimes we look at people that way, even when we become adults. We have clubs so that we can meet people who are important around town and get to know them, and maybe they'll help our business if we help their business. We're often looking for something from people, and Jesus says, that's not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. Just as God welcomed you with open arms, hugging you and embracing you and saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. That's how we should welcome new believers into our family. Do you go out of your way to love others the way Jesus does? Is our church welcoming to new people? Are you? When somebody is new, do you try to make sure that they feel welcomed and wanted here? Or are you looking at them thinking, that's kind of my seat. I've been sitting there for 20 years. If you look closely, you can see my impression in the cushion. I'm glad you're here. And our church family is welcoming and loving. But we need to remember to keep doing that, right? Not just people just like me. Because in God's measurement, there's nothing. Right? Nothing I can do that can measure up to his holiness, his perfect standard. All of my sins are like filthy rags compared to Christ's righteousness. So how can we look at each other and judge and say, you're worth talking to and you're not worth talking to? That's not the way God treats us. So Jesus says to the disciples, stop arguing about who's greatest among you. Treat each other as I treat you. I love you, and I would lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. 
but the disciples have more to learn. Verses 38 to 41, the Apostle John doesn't say too many bad things. He writes a beautiful gospel. It's the gospel of love. And yet here we see a side of John that's not so great. John makes a statement that further reveals the closed hearts of the, gospel, of the disciples. Verse 38, John said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Remember, they just couldn't cast out demons. They had the problem of not being able to do it. So we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. He wasn't following us. He wasn't one of the inner 12. So we tried to stop him. Hey, who do you think you are casting out demons in Jesus' name? Jesus' response is, don't stop him. If he's truly doing miracles in my name, how is he possibly going to then speak against me? If God has done a miracle through this person, then they must be part of the team. They must be on our side. If he's not against us, then he's for us. The disciples wanted to make sure that their in-crowd stayed exclusive. That people didn't get to ride along on Jesus' coattails and be part of whatever they thought was coming. The leadership positions, the, the choice spots in Christ's kingdom. They're still trying to protect that. Today, for us, that might look like other denominations who clearly preach the gospel, who clearly proclaim the word of God, and yet they differ in some church practices from us. Reformed churches, some of you have listened to lots of great preachers online. They're preaching the gospel really solidly, but they do some things differently than we do. I don't agree with what they're doing, and I, I struggle with it biblically, but it's not the gospel. And just like this group of people who were, by God's power and grace, casting out demons, but they weren't part of Jesus' close following. And Jesus said, let them keep doing it. If they're not against us, then they're for us. Jesus said in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water will be rewarded. This is like the least thing you could do, right? He doesn't say if somebody gives you a meal or a place to stay. Remember when he sent them out to do ministry? He said if, if someone welcomes you into their home, accept that hospitality and bless them. Someone gives you a cup of water and says, thank you for sharing the gospel. Just a simple cup of water. Jesus said that person will be rewarded for this. Don't look at other people and measure their importance by how great they treat you, how highly they respect you. If they do anything to help you share the gospel, then honor them and be thankful. Don't judge the size of the gift. Be grateful. Jesus' teaching here was to encourage a welcome openness to all followers of Jesus Christ. And John was looking for an exclusive club of just the authorized disciples, right? Like they're going to put a badge on their robes that we're the 12 and the rest of you are, are lower class. Throughout the New Testament, there are many warnings of false teachers. Jesus wasn't saying accept everyone and don't have a clear doctrine. Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 1, I'm astonished 
that you so quickly are deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there really is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. There are churches that would be called ecumenical because they say, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then it's all the same. There's really no difference. Jesus said, my word will never end. It's going to continue. And the word is important. Jesus is called the word. So we're a church that stands firmly on God's word. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to subtract from it. And we want to follow it as closely as we can understand and do, right? So those are the practices of our church. That's why we literally baptize people in water so that they're completely wet and not just sprinkled. But someone who says baptism is good, but they're doing it in a different way, it doesn't mean that they're not believers. We just don't believe that they're following it the same way. So they're preaching the same gospel, but they're doing some things differently. We can be brothers and sisters with them. We can fellowship with them. But our church is going to say, how are we going to follow this book? And we do that by our statement of faith. What I would consider another gospel today would be the word of faith, where people say, this gospel rewards your faith with wealth and health. Nowhere did Jesus say, become my follower, and everything is going to be a bed of roses. In fact, just a couple messages ago, Jesus said, you're going to have to pick up a cross and be willing to die to be my follower. So to me, that's a clear distortion of the gospel, to tell people that if you really believe in Jesus, then your life is going to be perfect. You don't have to worry about getting sick. You don't have to worry about your bank account not being filled, and you can have everything you want here on earth if you just believe enough. To me, that's a false gospel. The local version of that is the family church. They preach prosperity and wealth. And churches that say you can be healed of anything if you just believe enough. Jesus has reasons for our struggles. James said we have trials and tribulations so that we can become more like Jesus, so that we can develop a stronger faith. We can overcome those problems when we see Christ walking through them with us. Our struggles strengthen our faith. So if Jesus wanted us to be struggle-free, then our faith would be weak. He lets those things happen in God's providence. He knows what we need, and it's different for every one of us. We can say, well, why does this person have cancer, and why is this person struggling here, and why can't that person have a job that takes care of all of their needs? God knows exactly what every one of us needs to grow to be more like Jesus Christ. So do you trust him? Do you believe that he's going to give you everything you need? Jesus said that clearly. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'm going to take care of you just like I take care of the sparrows. I provide for their needs. I'm going to provide for yours. I'm not going to give you riches 
so that you go off the rails into a life of indulgence if that's something you can't handle. Are there Christians that have money? Yeah, they do great things. They can build hospitals, they can give to missions, they can help church planters, but they're doing it humbly and they're recognizing that God is blessing them. That's a false gospel. And if God's word warns us about it, then we need to recognize that it's something we should be aware of too. I'm pressing the screen and it's not a touch screen. (laughs) Sorry. Jesus was talking about other disciples serving faithfully in his name. We have different denominations today. We have different associations based on what we would call secondary doctrine, practices of the church, things that are not the core gospel. And we can fellowship. We can love brothers and sisters. We can be thankful that they are seeing people saved and become disciples. We can find common ground in the gospel. The conference that I was able to go to the end of April, in the end of April, was called Together for the Gospel. And there were preachers from several different groups there proclaiming God's word. We could sing together, we could read God's word together, and even on the platform, the guys could joke about their differences and say, you know I'm right, and the other guy would say, yeah, I believe I'm right too. They're, they both have scriptural basis for what they believe, but the gospel is clear. And we need to be able to find that common ground and be smart about who we partner with in ministry. So what are some takeaways from our passage today? As Jesus was preparing his disciples, what was Jesus' main message? He was telling the disciples that you need to have the right attitude for ministry. And it wasn't just for their day. It's important for us today too. Instead of pride and prejudice, we need to have humility and compassion. I, I believe pride is at the core of our sinful hearts. It's one of the things that we all struggle with because we see the world uniquely, and sin has affected that. The first temptation in the garden was to disobey God so that Adam and Eve could be like God. They could know what he knew, and they didn't like the idea of God knowing things that they didn't know. So Satan tempted them based on that pride. said, don't you want to be like God? Sure. We see that played out again and again today as people decide they're going to live their lives any way they want, regardless of what God says. Doesn't God love and accept everybody? God loves everybody, and he accepts repentant sinners. He doesn't accept people who say, I'm going to continue living my life contrary to you. Just deal with it, God. If you stood in God's presence, you wouldn't say that. The Bible says everyone is going to fall on their knees before God. Those that have not trusted him as Savior are going to realize at that moment that Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. And every knee will bow before him. But Christ wanted people to recognize him as Savior while they're still alive here on earth. Because that means you have a relationship with God now and it lasts forever. Eternal life. 
Will you bow your knee to Jesus today while there's still time? Or will you wait until it's too late? If you die here on earth physically, still in your sins, unsaved by Jesus, the Bible says your future is in eternity in hell. And the Bible said God loved the world so much that he didn't want anyone to go there. That was created for Satan, for the demons. He doesn't want his people, his creation to go there. So he sent his son to die for us. Salvation requires humility. I need to truly confess my sin before God and solely rely on Christ's atoning sacrifice, seeing that in myself there's nothing righteousness. There's nothing that I have to offer God except my life. Jesus, will you take my life and do something with it? Forgive my sins. My good deeds are not going to cut it. We need to come to him humbly. And then to serve him, we need to be humble and serve him because that's part of what's in the kingdom of God. That's how you become successful. If you want to call yourself the greatest servant, you say that only to yourself and say, I want to be a great servant, so I'm going to serve everybody. And the Bible says, don't tell anybody else you're great. Let them just see your love. So if you want to be successful, the Bible says, put yourself at the bottom and say, I love everybody else the way God loves me. I want to serve them. I want to care for them. I don't want them to elevate or highlight me. Jesus changes our lives. When we lack humility, when we want to be great, when we want to be an exclusive group that's close to ourselves, Jesus comes in and reveals to us that we need to change. And that transforming work, as I said before, continues through the Holy Spirit. He does a work in us. And Paul said, he who began a good work in me will continue it until that day, until we see Jesus face to face. He's going to keep working on me. And I'm so glad that God is patient. Just like Jesus was patient with his disciples and loving to them as they were arguing about who's greatest when he just said, I'm going to die for you. Yeah, but who's going to be in charge when you're gone? That's like a slap in the face. And Jesus just loved them and said, this is what God's kingdom looks like, embracing each other as you would show love to a little child. When we yield our lives, when we yield our hearts to Jesus Christ as Lord, then he can start changing our hearts he can start changing our thoughts and our mouths and our actions. That's what we're called to do. Mark's going to come and we're going to close in a song together. I would invite you to stay for coffee, stay for a class. If you want to learn more about us, come to the intro class. We'd love to have you part of this church family. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Christ's example of humility. Thank you for his example of long-suffering and patience, how he lovingly continued to teach his disciples just as he lovingly continues to teach us that his mercies are new every morning, that his grace is sufficient for us. 
Thank you for promising to meet all of my needs, to care for me. And thank you, God, for loving me, for forgiving our sins through Jesus Christ. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.